This is Founder Forward, the podcast from NEA, where we explore the company building journey with candid commentary from founders and investors. Some legendary, some just getting started, all moving forward. I'm Kate Barrett. On this episode of Founder Forward, I spoke to Garang Choksi, founder and CEO of Violet, the first cultural competence credentialing and upskilling platform for clinicians. Garang shared the importance of inclusive care in generating better health outcomes and building health equity for all. My name is Garang. I'm the founder here at a company called Violet. We're essentially building the first ever platform dedicated to building health equity with education and data. And on every episode of Founder Forward, we like to fast forward to get some insights from a founder and investor who are walking this road together. Today, we'll hear from Chris Miller, CEO of Everside Health, one of the nation's largest providers of direct primary and mental health care, and Mohamed Maksumi, NEA Managing General Partner and Head of Healthcare Investing. Chris and Mo talked about how Everside is approaching the massive healthcare market building a team with diverse expertise, and empowering patients to have more control over their care. My name is Mo Maxumi. I'm Managing General Partner and lucky enough to run NEA's global healthcare investing practice in my 21st year. So I'm Chris Miller, CEO of Everside, formerly Paladina. I have been CEO now for, uh, this is my seventh year, so just over six years. Transforming an industry that has served consumers one way for so long isn't easy. But when founders and CEOs prioritize patient outcomes, we can begin building toward a healthier and more inclusive future. Let's dive in. Garang, I actually want to start our discussion hearing a little bit about your journey before founding Violet. What it was that set you on the path to entrepreneurship and then what compelled you to actually take that leap and found a company? Great question. I grew up in India in a pretty small town. I moved to the U.S. when I was 10 and got to see what life is like for the 80 million Americans that are on Medicaid. My mom worked at a Wendy's, my dad worked at a factory, and then I'm a gay man as well. So really seeing how our healthcare system works and doesn't work through the lens of being a part of the LGBT community. And then professionally, I started my career in consulting. I have always been very entrepreneurial at 23, I remember I wanted to start an insurance company. And so I actually got a job at Oscar. I was in the first few hundred employees there. And what was fascinating was they were an insurance company and they built an amazing insurance company. But through my journey at Oscar and really taking my passion of building health equity, what I found was there was a unique opportunity to build health equity with education and data and technology. So in 2019, I'm based in New York City, which is where Oscar was headquartered. I went to a primary care doctor at a digital health company. So this was a primary care clinic that had venture funding. And even though I had been on PrEP, which is a preventative drug recommended for especially members of the LGBT community to prevent HIV, the physician I was sent to at this digital health company didn't know what PrEP was when I asked for a refill. And that was an incredibly upsetting and jarring experience. And at the same time, I was leading Oscar as LGBT affinity group. And what we would hear a lot is people would call in and say, I'm a mother. My eight-year-old is navigating gender. I want a doctor that understands how to work with gender. And as an insurance company, we were kind of blind. What we wanted was a clear indicator that said this doctor is objectively inclusive with gender or race or really any core cultural competencies or cultural humilities. 
but that data doesn't exist. So at Violet, what we're building, it's something quite novel. We're building the first ever credit agency for cultural competence. And we intentionally use that analogy. What we really believe is that the ability to be inclusive by clinicians, it's a skill. It's a skill everybody could fine tune, but what you need is clarity on how are you doing? What do you need to do to be better? We get to know care delivery teams. We upskill them to be more inclusive. And then we use data to power their directories to make it easier for the one out of two Americans that are LGBT or BIPOC to get to the right person faster. Improving access to care is such an important mission, Garang, and it's a core focus of Eversight's business too. You know, Chris and Mohammed talked about what it was like tackling that mission in the early days, just as the global pandemic was accelerating. We've been fortunate enough to work together, Chris, now for almost four years, and not much has happened in those four years. We, you, you know, you've only 10x'd a business, spun it out of a large public company, you know, folded in multiple acquisitions, <laughs> and then tangled with a with a, a once in a generation health pandemic as a healthcare company sitting at the focal point of return to work for hundreds of thousands of Americans. So. It's a unique story, Chris, because most investments, at least in in venture world, you have a firm like NEA and we partner with an entrepreneur and a founder early in the company build. We partnered together to spin out a division of a $15 billion public company, stand it up as an independent business and then build it standalone doing some, some really disruptive things. I'm fortunate to be at the helm of this business. As you mentioned, it's a transformational company here and and our, our mission is to really transform the way the U.S. healthcare system is evolving, uh, enabling patients in our care to lead their healthiest lives. And we're fortunate to do that now for about 600,000 patients across the United States. Chris, our journey together as partners was accelerated by all the common connectivity that we share really through the NEA network. So I feel like at the time, DeVito was selling Paladina. We, NEA, had a thesis around primary care for employers but I feel like our relationship just accelerated so dramatically given all the, the shared points of, of connectivity. And, and I, I don't know that, that it would have worked so well if we hadn't come in with all of those shared connections. Yeah, I think that's right. We collectively decided to spin out what was then Paladina of DeVita with the blessing of Kent and Joe and, and the board, given some of the changes they were making uh, as well, given some of their non-core assets. And so we went through a process and brought in a bank and and met with a number of different potential investors slash acquirers. NEA emerged very quickly as as the the leader, given expertise in healthcare technology and connectivity. And I'd heard the legend of this gentleman named Mo. Um, And when I I finally got to meet Muhammad in person, it was pretty clear that uh, that, this was the right place for us to land. And I'd like to uh, to tease Mo a little bit about this because we actually got a, a couple other bids that uh, that offer us a little bit more from a cash perspective. But NEA clearly was the right place for us to land, regardless. And and it was great because Kent and the team gave me the leeway to make sure this was landing in the right spot. And I remember being together in that yep. big conference room in Denver in July of 2018 when we announced the deal to the entire Paladina team and. Yeah. I mean, the business is dramatically different today in a whole number of positive ways. I think it'd be great for the listeners to really kind of 
understand what the Everside model is, you know, what you are delivering for your customers, the employers, and their employees, the members, and the dependents, and how that has changed over time and how you think it'll change going forward. Because I know one of the things you and I talk frequently about is what the next iteration of our company is going to look like. Yeah. We are a direct-to-employer, value-based care company built on the foundation of primary care. And so what we do is we build and staff on-site and near-site health centers, and then we staff them with PCPs and we funnel as much care as we can through those health centers. So what that means is the employee, it's typically free for the employee, it's paid for by the employer, they then have 24-7 access to that provider. And what that better access to care then does is drive great results. So amazing patient satisfaction scores, much better clinical outcomes, better than 90th percentile in terms of HEDIS measurements, and then tremendous cost savings for the clients we serve because their employees have access to care. So that's the nature of, of what we do. And again, the results are, are, have been pretty dramatic in terms of the cost savings, typically 17% by year three and, and 51% by, by year five for the clients that we're serving. So where we're moving, the foundation has been primary care, but we want to be and are now, but are moving more in this direction to be a total cost of care saving solution for the clients that we're serving. And that means building on the foundation of primary care, but adding more and more ancillary services like mental health solutions, physical therapy, occupational health, pharma, labs, like the more services we can provide for the, uh, the clients, the more that we can save them. Chris, I, the way I kind of think about it, you know, because a lot of our partners focus in tech and entrepreneurs, it's kind of going full stack and the opportunity to kind of own the entire journey and patient experience beyond primary care. But knowing that primary care is the front door through which every one of us has to walk through to access the downstream specialists and labs and pharmacy and, and you know, outpatient resources. I don't know that there's another opportunity like that that we see in healthcare or even in consumer e-commerce. I mean, it's it's just a massive, massive market, and you've built a great business on a tiny speck of it. So at the end of the day, Garong, I mean, Everside, Violet, thousands of other companies are essentially trying to democratize access to quality care. I read a comment that you made somewhere that empathy is not inclusivity. What do people need to know about the distinction between the two? Great question. You could be filled with empathy when it comes to working with Black patients or LGBT patients like myself, but it doesn't necessarily mean you'll have the expertise or the skill set to actually know what I need to know based on my identities. Gay men in America have 20 times the rate of colorectal cancer, and if clinicians appropriately taught about HPV vaccine, that rate could be drastically reduced. But what we're seeing is a lot of times clinicians are, one, overwhelmed. Two, they're often not easily taught or provided the tools they need to know about these inequities and what they could do about it. And three, we don't use data in an efficient way. So we really believe that by recognizing cultural competence as a skill, we could use that data to meaningfully deliver better outcomes. And what we're seeing is so many of our partners, the care delivery organizations, they're excited because now, for the first time ever, they're able to objectively see a scorecard almost that says, my team is doing really, really well working with this community, but we have room for growth working with gender identity or sexual orientation. And what that does is now it, that transparency yields accountability. The learning and development leadership, the chief medical officer, the CEO of these organizations, now they know what they need to invest in. 
And that's really been a powerful unlock. That's interesting. Everside has emphasized education as a key component of democratizing healthcare too. It's had a lot to do with how they've responded to the challenges presented by the pandemic. Let's take a listen. You, Chris, and the team, I I felt like had the perfect balance between playing offense and defense at the same time and like, you know, covering your flank, but also thinking, as you said, about opportunities, because no doubt the pandemic has created enormous opportunity in healthcare, in technology enabled healthcare, and candidly, most specifically in primary care as the front door. We started every day with asking ourselves two questions. In the midst of a uh, crisis, the question number one was, how can we continue to serve our patients? How can we continue to serve them well? And question number two is, how can we serve them better than the way we did before? So with, you know, never waste a good crisis. You've heard that quoted many, many times. So the answer to the first question was, we need to keep our health centers open. And we, we kept 100% of them open throughout the pandemic. The second question of how can we serve our patients even better was, let's switch to do more virtual care. And so we had the virtual piece in place. We were doing just a small percentage of our patient visits were done virtually. And at the height of the pandemic, we were doing as many as 75% of our our patient visits done virtually. And so it's actually been a a really positive movement for us. These are not typically early adopters that we serve, but now they're getting on their phone and and dialing and their providers by video. And so, look, this didn't escape us. This is an opportunity for us, and it really propelled our growth in a much different way. One of our challenges is continuing to educate the public, educate the types of clients we serve about the value of direct primary care and value-based care. And look, let's not ignore some of these, the facts in, in the United States. You've got about 25% of Americans don't have a primary care physician. Almost half of Americans choose not to go to see their doctor because they can't afford it. And so we have figured out a way to deliver better health care through the employers and deliver much better outcomes for patients. And this education piece has been really, again, propelled by some of the uh, downside effects of the pandemic. It's actually helped us to continue the education throughout this country. Hearing all that, those are some alarming statistics. And Garang, I think you probably have a few of your own specific to the population or populations that Violet serves. Yeah, and there's so many studies about this, but... By 2045, one out of two Americans will be a part of the LGBT or BIPOC communities, meaning one out of two Americans will be culturally diverse. And yet our healthcare system, the tools and the technology and the employees in the healthcare system are not able to actually serve the communities that they want to serve to the capacity that they want to. And what we're seeing is these disparities and these inequities will not get better until we actually invest in helping everybody access the right education at the right time and actually upskill themselves. As a company, we intentionally use the word upskill because we deeply believe that the ability to be inclusive, it's not just about memorizing facts. Clinicians and care delivery professionals are amazing at memorizing facts. That's not the problem. The problem is a lot of times you may know the importance of bringing in race into a conversation, but as a clinician, you may not still feel comfortable saying the word black or bringing in race into a care delivery interaction when you know you want to to actually teach about disparities. In the past few years, we've seen a huge, really verticalization of healthcare. We've seen many care delivery companies focus on specific conditions like equip at for eating disorders or focusing on communities like the folks of the world focusing on the LGBT community. 
at Violet, what we're doing is taking a horizontal approach, which is, I deeply believe in as a human, I do believe this, we can unlock a lot of inclusive care if we look at existing care delivery organizations. And then on top of that, what we're seeing is humans are intersectional. As a human, I don't think about me being a gay man as a really greater degree of importance than me being an Indian immigrant. What I know is I am both, both of those identities that make up me. And similarly, what we're seeing is as America as a country continues to get more diverse and intersectional, people don't want to pick one identity or one condition. What they want is one doctor that can really see their whole person, right? See all of the identities that they have, all of the conditions they're processing and navigating. And what we're able to do is as we have partnerships with care delivery organizations, we can help them make sure that they have the data they need to get every single patient based on all of their identities and conditions to the best possible person for them internally. And that really is how we'll build health equity together. It seems clear that what patients want is easier access to more personalized care. But change is slow to come in an industry that's as sprawling and complicated as healthcare. I want to share some of Mohammed and Chris's conversation about this. Healthcare is so fascinating, you know, because you have these massive incumbents that sit across the landscape, right? And it's crazy to say that Everside as a $300 million business is still infinitesimally small in the grand scheme of a four and a half trillion dollar industry. Like, how do you navigate a, a competitive landscape that has these behemoths in it? And not to mention the Amazons and the Walmarts and these non- healthcare behemoths wanting to get into this, you know, really attractive market segment. How much time do you worry about that? How do you navigate that? Yeah, another great question. So look, we are very intentional about our differentiation. That's the first point I'll make. And I'll talk a little bit about that to illustrate it. And so what's the lovely outcome of all this is we have gotten the attention of those behemoths and, you know, they're talking to us about partnerships now. And I think that's a great tribute to how we've differentiate ourselves. But it all starts with the results. And we haven't talked about this as much, but that's the real differentiator for Everside. And we deliver significantly better clinical outcomes. We deliver significant cost savings for the clients we're serving and fantastic net promoter scores. So patient satisfaction scores are really, really high. I mean, our MPS, the latest MPS score is 85. And you think about some of those that lead the way typically in the healthcare industry. It's higher than Netflix. Forget about healthcare industry. Yeah. We're up there with uh, Netflix and Apple and Trader Joe's and Ritz Carlton. And, and look, the average and net promoter score for a primary care physician is negative. It's negative 1.7 and we're at 85. So, so it tells you that we're delivering a great service for both our clients and the patients we serve. And because of that, we do get that attention from some of the hemists that are saying, hey, whoa, what's going on here? And we have figured out a way to deliver much better healthcare through the employer to these patients who desperately need it. And the results speak for themselves. So because of that, I think even though we are much smaller than some of these behemoths, we have attracted their attention. Yes, quite captivated on Everside. And, and I would say, Chris, there's a good lesson in there in the sense that I think it's really easy for entrepreneurs, for CEOs, for investors to get caught up in what the competitive landscape looks like and who's doing what. And, oh, this firm made an investment here and, and they're this big tech company's trying to enter the category. And, you know, in the sense that, like, you know, usually when something doesn't work, it's because you, the company, didn't succeed, not because of what someone outside the company did. And, and I think you're in the team's maniacal focus on 
operating excellence, on the product, on the patients and the member experience and blocking out all the other noise. You know, it's hard to do, but you've done it. And that's, that's been a key ingredient to your success. Well, I appreciate that. It is, it is a focus and it's a maniacal focus, as you mentioned, on, on making sure we're seeing things through the lens of patients first. If we're taking care of our patients and delivering great outcomes to patients, satisfaction scores, we know that's going to lead to better cost savings for the clients we serve too. And to your point earlier, look, you know, there's 110 million Americans right now that get their insurance through self-insured employers. We're serving about 600,000 of those. So there's lots and lots of white space for us to grow ahead, right? And so because of that, and I don't mean for this to sound you know, aloof in any way, but we're not terribly worried about competition, right? There's a lot of patients who need our service, a lot of employers who need to save money, healthcare spend increasing 6 7% year over year, and we've reduced that spend to 1.1%. So we can deliver great outcomes to these clients. So because of that, you know, we don't really spend sleepless nights thinking about competition. We know if we're going to execute well, business is going to grow. Garang, how did you think about that as you were forming Violet and figuring out how you were going to operate? Kate, what I believe is that the future of healthcare, like every industry, is going to be personalized care. And tactically, what does personalization look like? It means you do your best to use technology to actually deliver quality healthcare where there is meaningfully better health outcomes. And one of the core pillars of health outcomes is patient and provider trust. Does that patient actually believe that the provider you're going to connect them with will understand them? will advocate for them, will actually build a lasting relationship. And what we believe is that whether you're a behemoth in healthcare or you're a nascent startup that's doing verticalized care delivery, everybody wants to focus on delivering the highest quality care. And what we're starting to see is we see partners across the spectrum. We see large systems coming to us saying, I really want to make sure I'm building health equity. And similarly, we see verticalized care delivery companies coming to us saying, I'm an expert in a certain community, but I know my patients are intersectional. And what I want is to be sure that I can connect them to the best possible person internally. All right. So what's your NPS? Or more seriously, like what are the metrics that matter? Yeah, we think a lot about metrics being a startup. What we look at are really three key pillars of metrics. One is how much are the clinicians learning on our platform? Two is what is the impact we're having on every single organization? And three is clinical outcomes, which we're working on. For us, we're seeing a lot of engagement, more than anybody else has seen for our care delivery-focused learning platform. To give a data point, right now, on average, 86% of the providers join our platform when we invite them, which is huge because what that shows you is providers want to learn. It's just they don't want to learn with a low-quality compliance-like training. They want to learn with quality education. On the outcomes itself, we're actually conducting research with a few other organizations to look at as they use our data about their own care delivery teams for care coordination, do they build better relationships? And then for the secondary bullet around the impact we have on organizations that we partner with, we just published a great case study with this company called Brightline where they are an industry leader on adolescent behavioral health care. But what they were able to do within a span of a year, which is super impressive, they quickly were able to identify an area of growth for their team. For them, it just so happened that it was gender identity and youth. And they upskilled themselves drastically. So when we first benchmarked the team, only 4% of the team had cultural competencies with working with gender and youth. And within the course of one year, they completed over 900 hours of training 
And more importantly, they grew that 4% to 19%. And Kate, what they did in that year was they meaningfully, they invested in their team. And to us, that's how we built health equity, which is we create systems that meaningfully teach people how to be inclusive, and then we celebrate that inclusivity. So we know that in order to provide that training and education externally, you have to have a strong, well-trained internal team. I want to talk about your hiring process, but first let's hear an excerpt from Kristen Mohammed's conversation about Everside's approach. Everside is blended. If you look at the executive leadership team, you've got tech companies, you've got marketing companies like Clear, you've got, you know, retail companies like Walgreens, and then really hardcore healthcare companies like Davida and Caremore. How do you blend a team from such diverse backgrounds and get them to buy into that shared, you know, mission and, and values? It helps by making sure you're doing the right kind of hiring. And so the three boxes I always try to check when I'm hiring. I know, I know what you're going to say, and I love it. Go ahead. You know what I'm going to say? You've heard me say this a lot, but it's hungry, humble, and smart. And like, if I can find those three boxes, the level of expertise oftentimes doesn't matter. As I want somebody who is really hungry to change the way the healthcare system is evolving, who wants to make a big impact. I need humility because that's really a big key part of our culture. We're, we're servant leaders and you know, we want to make sure that that's instilled in, in what we do each day. And look, smart never hurts. Hiring people that are smart who've done this before. You look at some of the logos on my executive team now. I mean, we've got ChenMed, we've got Walgreens, we've got you know all sorts of payer expertise. And so it's really been wonderful to bring individuals who've seen you know successes, failures, and they're bringing those best practices to the table now and can blend that big company expertise along with aggressive growth expertise. This team is executing you know, extremely well right now. So I'm very fortunate to have been able to attract the type of uh, teammates that I've, that I've been able to attract, especially within the last you know, 18 months and build a world-class team. It's remarkable. And, and I think, Chris, there's, there's a great lesson embedded in there for other founders and entrepreneurs because some of it's been planned, but some of it's also been serendipity. You know, we had a, a CFO who decided to walk out in the middle of the pandemic and that wasn't planned. But you look at where we landed with one of the most talented CFOs I've ever worked with who came out of, you know, Walgreens Boots Alliance. And so talk a little bit about planned versus unplanned and how to, how to roll with the punches, so to speak. So one advice I'd give to you know, earlier stage entrepreneurs is to start to build a pipeline very early in terms of just relationship building, connectivity, not necessarily to hire those people, but who do they know as well? Look, this happens with investors, but also happens with leaders of big and small companies too. And so I, I'm fortunate to have a bit of a global pipeline that I can tap into, you know, not only to, to find leads, but really to do diligence on some of these people too, which is really critical. So, Garang, what is your approach when it comes to constructing the right team to build and grow the business? I love the way Chris framed it up. What I look for is two core things. One is humility, and two is a deep desire to build health equity. And what we've been able to do is attract really people that have built high-growth startups before. And for us, our executive leadership and the full team, it's a mix of individuals that, one, every single person cares about health equity, but two, people either have educational and tech backgrounds or health tech backgrounds. So quite a few of the team members, including myself, came from Oscar and other health plans. But collectively, when we have to dig deep and sometimes dig deeper into healthcare concepts or education concepts, those are amazing conversations. Because now we have the right people around the table really advocating from their point of view and why there are certain decisions we need to make to make learning in healthcare as easy as possible. And you're a first-time founder. 
despite having long been entrepreneurial. And you founded this company really right as the pandemic was accelerating, right? So how did you recruit people? So my approach to hiring is really finding top talent and sending them notes, working with amazing recruiters that are focused on mission-driven early-stage startups, and then having honest conversations with people, letting them know exactly what the state of affairs are with your organization and what you're marching towards, and then giving them the opportunity to say, is this aligned to your goals? Do you want to build health equity? And do you want to use education and data as the vehicle for building health equity? If yes, then join our team. So we've talked a lot about building a team, but what about building a team of investors? I want to share some of Mohammed and Chris's conversation about Everside's approach to this and, and how Chris ended up partnering with NEA. If I were a founder, an entrepreneur, a CEO that I'd want to kind of understand is, is what advice you have for them around what to look for when raising capital when seeking a partner, you know, either in things to avoid or things to run toward. And and you've seen it because I think it's unique at the venture stage, the growth stage, and and with all the the inbounds that you've gotten from strategics and and public investors, like how do you cut through the noise and and what advice do you have for other founders? So a couple of things. So when looking for the right kind of investor partner, the first thing I look for is, is a track record of success. And so that's really meaningful. That track record of success brings a pattern of, of, of recognition. And if you can see pattern recognition, then those investors are going to be really helpful in taking you from one stage to the next. They see things before you do and, and can, can give you a heads up for that sort of thing. And so the wonderful thing about bringing on an investor with a track record of success is you can reach out to those CEOs, those executives before you do a deal with them and really get the true story, right? And so I called a number of CEOs and they all told me what a wonderful partner NEA was. Um, so that track record of success is, is really critical. I mentioned NEA had the expertise in both healthcare and technology, and, and we really wanted to move into more of a tech-enabled delivery of services. And so that was key to have that expertise. And the third thing I, I looked at, too, was that hold pattern, right? And so bringing on an investor whose average hold time is nine years is really meaningful and allows you to grow the business at the pace which makes the most sense, right? So I don't have to make any hasty decisions to flip this and deliver returns to LPs in two or three years. It helps you to run the business much more differently. And so that was a key piece of what I look for. And look, I think that it's mutual in the sense that I feel like we were and still are totally aligned. And, and I knew the, the ways that that I could support you. And I knew they were going to change, right? Because the stuff that you need from our team is very different now than it was when we first started together, right? And I feel like the hallmark of a great relationship between a, a CEO and, a, and an investing partner is that you can adapt and change as the dynamics, as the company, as the market changes so that, you know, we're both kind of, you know, hitting the right notes as the company changes. Yeah, but like the important thing is to keep the dialogue going uh, throughout each stage, right? And so, so look, you, wonderful thing about you all is you respect the fact that I don't need to you know, have somebody advise on the day-to-day operations of the company you trust that's going to happen because I'm a fairly seasoned executive, fortunately by now. But it is, it's important to just keep the dialogue going throughout each stage of the company, right? And so you and I talk a lot. I talk to, to a number of my investors a lot. And there's always aspects of strategy, growth, personnel that I need help with. But to your point, they're very different from where they were four years ago, right? And so it's a, it's a different kind of help, but the key pieces are always there in terms of how I can help you and, and you me. 
So what do you think, Karang? Is that the best way to diligence a potential investor? Absolutely. Kate, I have done countless reference calls on all of my investors, all of my advisors, all of my employees. And frankly, I absolutely love hearing other founders and other partners' experiences with potential partners. And for us and for me personally, the more data points I have, the more helpful it is to know that that is the investor I really want to work with long term. One of my favorite interview or reference call questions to ask is asking about a time that the specific individual had to apologize. And that question generally unearths a lot of hidden truths. That's fascinating. Did anybody ever say the person has never apologized? Because I would think that would be (laughs) a really good leading indicator, too. There's been a few times uh, specific founders have shared that, oh, this investor never has quite apologized. And to me, then there's a secondary question of, did it ever warrant an apology where you felt that it just wasn't received? As you approach two years, I guess, on the, the job as a founder here, what advice would you offer to aspiring or emerging founders? Are there lessons that you learned that you wish you hadn't or advice that you didn't get but wish you had? For me, staying humble, continuing to work hard, and actually prioritizing honest relationships has been a huge value add. There's been so many investors, so many advisors, individuals that I've met that sometimes they gave me feedback that at the time maybe I didn't want to quite hear. But thematically, what you often find is as themes emerge, that feedback has merit. And so my word of wisdom really would be keep working hard and keep building honest relationships. I really, really enjoyed hearing about what you're building. I really enjoyed hearing about your perspective and sort of even just what led you to found the company. I think you have a really powerful story um, and I'm really grateful that you decided to share some of that with us today. So thank you. No, thank you for having me. This has been really lovely. And I appreciated hearing um, the snippets from Chris and Mohammed's conversation as well. It was fun to hear about their approach to building quality care. I don't want to take another minute away from you running our very important business. And and I can't thank you enough for sharing your thoughts here today. Thanks for giving me the opportunity. I'm grateful for it and, uh, and happy to be of continued help as needed. Thank you. It's always inspiring to hear a founder share their journey. It's inspiring and instructive to hear about a company's mission to ensure all patients have access to effective, inclusive care. And I think understanding how those goals infuse every aspect of company building offers a lot to any founder that they can take away and apply in their own journey. I'd like to thank Garang, Chris, and Mohammed for sharing their incredible stories with us. It's been a pleasure to hear about their journeys and learn from their experiences. I hope you learned a lot too. Thank you for joining us. Founder Forward is a production from NEA made in partnership with Frequency Media. From NEA, I'm your host and executive producer, Kate Barrett, with support from Ashley Mitchell, Erica Sunken, and Shanna Hendricks. From Frequency Media, Michelle Corey is our executive producer, Ina Garkusha is our supervising producer, Jordan Rizzieri is our producer, and Catherine Devine and Emily Krumberger are our associate producers. Our mixer and sound designer is Claire Bidigari-Curtis, with dialogue editing by Sydney Evans. For more on NEA, visit NEA.com. You can subscribe to Founder Forward on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Podcasts.